I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with novelist and screenwriter Jay McInerney. With a longtime interest in wine, Jay is also the wine columnist for Town & Country magazine and the author of three books on wine. The Juice, Venus Veritas, A Hedonist in the Cellar, Adventures in Wine, and Bacchus and Me, Adventures in the Wine Cellar. Most famously, back in 1984, Jay published his debut novel, the era-defining Bright Lights, Big City. He is also the author of novels including Brightness Falls, Model Behavior, and The Good Life. When it comes to understanding wine, and particularly the big picture around winemaking, Jay steers clear of pretension and offers a refreshingly casual, decidedly entertaining perspective. He explores wine like the novelist he is, as a character study, getting to the essence of what makes a particular vintage so special. Before we begin the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Bordeaux winemaker, Chateau Tralong Mondeau. Through its blending process, Chateau Tralong Mondeau is able to express the complexity of its land, where there are no fewer than 25 subterroirs, three grape varieties, and a significant variety of altitudes. Together, these elements create a range of possibilities. To drink the wine is literally to enjoy the complexity of the land, with grapes that are 85% Merlot, 13% Cabernet Sauvignon, and 2% Cabernet Franc. An A. Santamillion classified first growth estate, Chateau Chalang Mondeau creates unfussy, beautifully balanced wines that reveal themselves gradually and with nuance. To learn more about the winery and its property, head to wwwtralong mondocom That's T-R-O-P-L-O-N-G-M-O-N-D-O-T.com. And now, here's our conversation with Jay McInerney. Hi, Jay. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you. So to start, what have you been drinking most during the pandemic? <laughs> well, you know, I've just been drinking more of what I usually drink, which is actually Burgundy. I mean, I love a lot of categories of wine and I drink a lot of different wines, but I'd say at least half of what I drink is white or red Burgundy. Mm. I've been doing plenty of that during the pandemic. It definitely <laughs> definitely hasn't slowed my drinking. <laughs> it seems like we start earlier and <laughs> with more enthusiasm when other <laughs> entertainment options are narrowed down or cut off. <laughs> and do do you remember the first bottle of wine you opened in lockdown when the pandemic initially hit or, or March 2020? I can't say that I do because the actual start of the pandemic was a little blurry in the sense that there were several uh, inflection points. I was in Miami Beach when everything started to shut down. And uh, Mm. uh, I don't tend to drink as well there as I do (laughs) elsewhere. The first night I remember hearing that restaurants in Miami were about to close. I remember that the only bottle I had left there at that point was a 2002 Raveneau Monte de Tenere. And that was kind of the last of the bottles that I had brought down from New York. And I thought that was another good reason to get the hell out of Miami. <laughs> I, was, I was running out of wine. <laughs> You'd also had this house fire in, in Watermill in December 2019. This sort of disastrous moment right before another it was a very bad 
year for, for us. It was a bad year for everyone, but we, but we pretty much started the year by having our house burned down. And uh, mm. it's very traumatic. It's hard to describe the feeling of displacement and, and loss, and it, and it takes a while for it to sink in. But we were, we were just sort of waking up from that experience when this other uh, more general trauma descended. And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't want to repeat that year for anything. Mm. One of the questions that comes up when talking about the pandemic in the past couple of years is just what has shifted. And I'm wondering within the world of wine from your vantage, what's your answer to that? What cracks has the pandemic revealed or what has shifted in the world of wine? Well, I think we're still kind of waiting for some of the answers to that question. But one of the first things that shifted was that suddenly um, restaurants weren't taking their allocations. (laughs) Mm. So people like me were getting a lot of offers from retailers that we'd never seen before. I mean, suddenly Rouleau and Rumier were were available from retail outlets, you know, places that hadn't sold them in years, really. So it was a boon for collectors. It was a bit of a boon. Um, Also, you know, a lot of restaurants started selling off parts of their stock. I have a lot of friends who took advantage of that. You know, I, I, I did a little bit myself, although... I couldn't help feeling really bad about it because so many restaurants, they spend years building up their cellars. And, you know, not that many have cellars of depth and and breadth. And I found it really sad to see some of these people liquidating uh, what had been Mm -hmm. so carefully accumulated and curated over the years. I mean, that was a big part of the pandemic story was restaurant survival. Mm-hmm. I think we're still seeing the recovery and, uh, the, and the fallout. There were some places that shut down forever. There are others that <laughs> sold most of their sellers. Everybody's suffering from staff shortages right now. I personally noticed the retirement of a half a generation of sommeliers moving into different areas of the wine business. That's something that Again, it's a little bit sad, but I hope that what happens after this is that the restaurant industry becomes more, that healthier economic models are adopted, you know, because Mm. frankly, the industry was on the brink to begin with. Mm -hmm. It was on the brink in 2019, as Gabrielle Hamilton and others have pointed out. I think restaurateurs need to rethink their models. And, and And I think we all have to be willing to pay more for great food. Mm-hmm. That's definitely been a theme on, on this series we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we should. I and mean, I, I was actually arguing this with my friends before the pandemic. Those are my friends who are involved in fine dining, you know, who, who said, oh, well, you know, we can't really raise our prices. People won't put up with it. And I, I think that people should put up with it if they want restaurant staff members to be adequately paid. And if they want, you know, the best ingredients and the best service experience, they, they should be willing to pay up. And I, and I think we've all been underpaying for, for that privilege for a number of years. Yeah, across the food systems in general, not just in fine dining. I mean, food should cost more and it would be healthier if it did. So we wanted to kind of go back a bit because I think many of our listeners know you, of course, from your incredible books from the earlier part of your career. But as a wine journalist or wine writer, how did you first become interested in wine? And when was sort of the moment when you completely fell for it and Gave it your full attention. Actually, my wine writing career and my literary career had were intertwined. 
I grew up in a household um, where cocktails were served. And uh, once a year, we'd have a bottle of Corbel sparkling wine on the table. But <laughs> I did not grow up with wine. Really, I, I discovered wine through literature. I mean, through Hemingway, for instance. You know, I mean, everybody in Hemingway's novels was always drinking wine. I mean, it wasn't always... It wasn't always fine wine. A lot of it came out of wineskins in Spain. But there was also Chateau Margaux in there, and the, and the sun also rises. And, uh, you know, Evelyn Waugh is another writer that I that I discovered fairly early on. Brideshead Revisited is just replete with wine references and actually has a whole section which sort of indulges in and also parodies the whole process of coming up with wine descriptors. <laughs> Lawrence Durrell, another writer that I admired, had a fair amount of wine in his books. And I mean, to a lesser extent, Scott Fitzgerald, but Fitzgerald drank just about anything. <laughs> but what I got from this is a sense that wine was a kind of a pertinence of the good life, you know, that that it was sophisticated, that it was cool, that it was that it was European, <laughs> you know, just like Jatin and Galois. And uh, my parents didn't drink it, that, which made it even cooler. None of us <laughs> want to drink what our parents drink. When I went to college, I remember that my go-to date wine was, was Chateauneuf de Pop because it was pretty, it was pretty foolproof, big, rich, delicious. Didn't require a lot of thought. And then the next step, I think, in my wine career uh, came when I went to graduate school. I, I, I went to study with Raymond Carver at Syracuse University. And in order to supplement my um, fellowship, I, I got a job in a in a liquor store, wine and liquor store, I guess you would say. And the proprietor was a Princeton guy who sort of had aspirations to running a high-end shop, although in fact, it was kind of in the ghetto. But he had a whole wine library there in the shop. And so in between like stick-ups and, and sales, I would um, I would read, you know, Hugh Johnson's Wine Atlas. And and, and every night I would take home a bottle of, um, oh, Yugoslavian Cabernet. There was there was a Yugoslavia still in existence back then. That was sort of the two dollar bottle, and I I gradually kind of worked my way up to Freshenay, which was I think six dollars at the time. You know the the Spanish Cava, which I guess still exists, <laughs> mm. probably costs a little more than six dollars now. And I don't know. It was the start of a palate. You got to start at the bottom and you work your way up. I was actually working at the Westcott Cordial Shop, the day that my first novel, Bright Lights Big City, was accepted for mm. publication. And I actually got the phone call there. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend had directed the editor to the number at the liquor shop. And um, that was where I first heard that oh, Bright Lights Big City was going to be published by Random House. I remember in my excitement, there was a shelf of sort of dusty bottles of Bordeaux that, that nobody ever bought. But there was a 1978 Smith Haute Lafitte there and I think one of the reasons I picked it was because it had a great sort of this blue and yellow label. With, it was a very pretty label. And um, the name Lafitte I knew was good, you know, <laughs> even though Smith Hall Lafitte is not Lafitte. But, but I took it home that night. You know, I, I actually paid for it. I, I paid actual cash for a bottle of wine. And I took it home that night and I drank it with my girlfriend. And in some ways, it was the best bottle of wine I ever had because it was... Wine is partly context, and uh, it was such a great moment for me that, that I'll never forget that bottle. You know, of course, I've had, objectively speaking, better bottles of Bordeaux <laughs> many years since, but uh, that was the beginning of my mania. 
when Bright Lights Big City came out in late 1984, and I started to actually make some money, the 1982 Bordeaux's were just being released in the United States, and I started buying them. But Bordeaux was my first uh, love, I guess. Mm. But you didn't really start formally writing till 12 years later. Exactly. Twelve, about 12 years later, I had a friend who took over House and Garden magazine in 1995. Her name was Dominique Browning, and she knew that I was, by then I'd become really passionate about wine. And uh, uh, it was probably boring some of my friends with my enthusiasm. By 1995-96, she felt like the good life for a sort of middle-class Americans was starting to include wine along with food mm -hmm. and you know, home decor and so on. And so she wanted to have a wine column in the magazine. And she called me up and asked me if I would consider writing the column. And my first reaction was, oh, you know, I just, I have no formal training. I don't know enough about wine. I just, I just love it. And, and she said, well, look, I've been reading a lot of wine writing and wine criticism. And she said, frankly, it all sucks. <laughs> And at the time, frankly, it did kind of suck, you know. You had your sort of technical wine writing that, you know, was all about bricks and malolactic fermentation and, and new oak barrels. And then, and then there was this sort of the British school of wine writing, which is very floral, you know, all about the smell of hawthorn blossoms and, and tea roses. And which none of spoke to you at the time anyhow. Like all of this, you didn't read this stuff. Seriously, did you? Not really. Well, I mean, I probably read The Wine Spectator at that point. But, right. you know, it was not by any means a repository of great literature. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, she said to me two things. She said, well, number one, why don't you just kind of admit that you're only like a chapter ahead in the textbook of your readers? And she said, number two, it seems to me that as a novelist, as a guy who recognizes a good story and who recognizes a good character, why don't you write about the wine world as a novelist? You know, write about the people involved, write about the stories involved. And that started to make sense to me. You know, also, I'm somebody who creates similes and metaphors on a, on a daily basis. Even though I might not have known at the time exactly what malolactic fermentation was, I could uh, compare a Chablis to Kate Moss, you know, or a California Chardonnay to Pamela Anderson, and people would kind of get what <laughs> I was going for. Right. And in some ways, to me, that sort of thing is more useful than talking about, you know, butter and pineapple and um, oak influence. Right. I told her I'd, I'd try it for six months and see how it went. And, uh, and I'm still doing it <laughs> 25 years later. I don't know. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, then you went on to write for, you had a column for Wall Street Journal, 2010 to 2014, I think, in town and country. And yep. But I do have to say that along the way, the, the whole wine writing scene became much more interesting and much richer. It's a much happier scene than it was in 1996. When, when you started. There weren't a lot of options for, you know, literate wine lovers. <laughs> and now that you've been doing it for, you know, 20 plus years and, and there's so much good stuff out there right now, what have you learned makes really good wine writing? What, what to you is what, what attracts you to wine writing? I just want it to be lively. I want it to be fun. Uh, I want it to dispense with the pomp and circumstance. You know, what, whatever your level of interest is and whatever your frames of reference are, there's someone out there writing for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I've now been doing this for 25 years. I'm in my 60s. 
And I'm not going to be the guy who discovers the latest pet gnat for <laughs> you. But there are people out there who who, who do that. Mm-hmm. I have a different beat, I guess. I mean, but, I, but what was fun when I started out was I was just, my turf was the entire world of wine. <laughs> Condé Nast at that time was famously extravagant and uh, open <laughs> walleted. And I... I traveled around the world on their dime, just learning about wine. I went to Chile and Argentina. I went to Tuscany and Piedmont. I went to South Africa. I went to the Jura. I went to Bordeaux and Burgundy and Spain and California and Oregon as well. The wine world was just really exploding at that point, geographically and stylistically. And I, you know, for a while I tried to cover it all. (laughs) And I learned a hell of a lot. But my goal was always to go to the place where the wine was made and to see the terroir and to meet the people who made it. You know, there's a school of wine writing where PR people get in touch with you and invite you to a lunch in New York with a winemaker. That could be useful up to a point, but that's not, that's not the way I like to do it. Yeah. And I was lucky enough for many years to have this, um, have this budget and, to be able to travel around the world meeting meeting some of the the best winemakers in the world i was i was lucky hey everyone just taking a quick break to tell you about our new at a distance book it's our first book we published it with our friends at apartamento and it features a curated selection of the interviews from this program over the past year and a half it's condensed edited and distilled It's a great collection of the best thinking shared by our guests presented in digestible, short-form narratives. The book provides a hopeful, optimistic guide for today and tomorrow in a gorgeous, flexi-bound volume. We're really excited about this. You can order your copy at slowdown.tv backslash at a distance book or through Apartamento and select booksellers. I mean, over all these years, is there a vineyard, a vintage, a room maybe in particular that stands out? I, I know you recently wrote about Rupert Murdoch's wine cave, for example. <laughs> that was a sort of New York PR thing where I was invited to Rupert Murdoch's apartment because he had bought a winery called Moraga in uh, Beverly Hills, basically. And uh, I visited this winery back in the 90s when it was owned by the founder, a guy named Tom Jones. And they actually made very good Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc. I was on the wine list at the Modern and so on. And it was a cool little sort of three-acre vineyard right in the shadow of the of the Getty Museum. So I wrote about it back then. And uh, Murdoch bought it four or five years ago for some reason. I still don't really understand why. <laughs> when I got invited, I thought, hell yeah, I'm going to go see Rupert Murdoch's apartment. I mean, how, how weird is this? <laughs> Yeah, I ended up talking to him for a while about wine. Um, if we talked about other things, it might have come to blows. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a weird little chapter. But again, I had written about this winery 20 years before. Mm-hmm. They actually were serving some older vintages mm-hmm. at that event, which which had held up really well. I want to ask a couple broad wine questions. Could you talk about some of the impacts you're, you're seeing or hearing about when it comes to the climate crisis on wine? I know there are vineyards in the UK introducing new grapes. There's vineyards in Washington State and Canada. Yeah. Bordeaux is now introducing new grapes. You know, I think um, if you're a wine grower, 
you believe in climate change. <laughs> Almost everyone keeps records of, of the harvest dates and so on. And they've been getting earlier and earlier and earlier over the last few decades, uh, almost everywhere in the world. The upside is that suddenly, like, people can get ripe, grapes ripe in the Moselle and in Burgundy almost every year, whereas it used to be, like, two, three times a decade that they actually achieved real ripeness. Mm. Even Bordeaux was not always able to get the Cabernet ripe. But now the problem is keeping balance and a sense of the traditional taste of that region's wines Mm -hmm. with grapes that are just getting riper and riper earlier and earlier. And uh, it's a huge problem. You know, the first time I remember thinking about this is I visited um, Torres in Catalonia, the Spanish domain, and talked to Miguel Torres. This must have been, God, close to 20 years ago. And he had just bought land at a much higher altitude. Like he was preparing for what he saw as the oncoming climate crisis and mm. was preparing to shift his production away from the vineyards that had made them relatively famous and made them a lot of money. And since then, this has become a, a really common topic whenever you visit winemakers. And fires, of course, in California, which you've written a little bit about. Napa has been hammered lately. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think anybody sees any amelioration of that problem. You know, it's nice that Oregon and Washington can (laughs) consistently make uh, rich and ripe wines. It's nice that we have more consistently warm vintages in places like Burgundy and Bordeaux, but they're they're all scared about the future and how how they're going to manage it. I mean, like, you know, the 2020 vintage in in, in France, another incredibly warm one, uh, almost like 2003, which was, I think, 2003 was the sort of alarm bell in Europe Mm. for um, climate change. If you recall, that was the year that like hundreds of French people died in their apartments because they didn't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And all the winemakers had to rush home from their summer holidays because the grapes were ripe early August. I think ever since then, people have been trying to figure out how to manage a warmer climate. You wrote Bright Lights, Big City during a moment of like massive change in the world and change in your own life. It came out of this huge transition, right? You talked about how you and your wife separated, you lost your mother, you were fired from your job as a fact checker at The New Yorker. Kind of everything was happening in your life. And also, you know, the city was changing so much at that time, culturally, art, music, everything. It was being reinvented. Do you think that we're in a similar time right now 40 years later, do you think that these cultural inventions or reinventions are occurring? Are you thinking about that at all? Are you recognizing a sort of parallel to that moment when you did that book? Well, as a New Yorker and as a writer, I'm always hoping that New York will continue to be this cradle of talent and creativity and and excitement. When I arrived in New York, it was the best of times and the worst of times. New York had barely survived the 70s, you know, uh, in the sense that it had almost gone bankrupt. A crime was rampant. There was a heroin epidemic. Middle-class people had fled to the suburbs en masse. There was some question about whether New York was going to just descend into chaos and and bankruptcy or whether it was going to rise from the ashes. I arrived in the fall of 1979, and and that was almost the low point or the turning point, I think. Uh, And... Obviously, as 
you have mentioned, it, New York did rise Phoenix-like from the ashes. It was those years were a period of great, great excitement. I think in terms of um, music, painting, and eventually literature. Downtown New York was this incredible crucible of, of, of talent and creation and cultural foment, and um, it was very exciting to be a part of that. And in the early years, it was you still had to like dodge muggers, and you know your apartment was broken into, and the subways barely ran at all, <laughs> and graffiti covered everything. And yet, there was a sense that I had that I was at the center of the world. That Washington Square Park was the dead center of what was happening in the world, and Almost anywhere within walking distance of my apartment in the East Village, you know, the CBGB's music scene, the Mud Club and area, and all all of these places were kind of interconnected. You know, in some ways, I I miss that time. I think that, you know, New York not only rose from the ashes, but it became so prosperous that, that many creative people have been driven out of the city, really. But... I don't know. I'm an old Manhattanite. (laughs) I'm still hopeful that New York retains its edge and reinvents itself. The funny thing is, mid-pandemic, New York started to look again like it did during the 80s. Yeah. Muggings in the street, homeless people everywhere, which which all sounds bad. But on the other hand, commercial rents certainly uh, have become more attractive in the wake of that. I know people who have opened restaurants in Manhattan that couldn't have afforded to do so two or three years ago. And I hope that that applies to to people opening little art galleries and clubs. Mm-hmm. What do you think about some of these landmarks like Odeon or Balthazar, these things that have seemed to last through this pandemic? Where do you think the staying power comes from? And are there other kind of establishments in New York that you hope never go and, and you think that there's something about them that Keeps them going. Well, I love both of those places. And the Odeon was on the cover of my first novel. Mm-hmm. I still argue with Keith and Lynn McNally about who owes whom money for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Balthazar has become an institution in the same way as Odeon. I don't know. I think there's, I think partly it's nostalgia for a time when New York was maybe a little livelier and edgier. Mm-hmm. You know, they're great institutions, but they certainly aren't challenging anybody's culinary expectations. Yeah, they're sort of not about that, right? Yeah, but for me, they represent, I mean, Odeon, when I first came to New York, was the place that you went to see, you know, Warhol and Belushi and, you know, Julian Schnabel and Eric Fischel and all the models. And it was kind of the center that, that was the canteen for that whole scene that I was just talking about, the creative downtown New York scene. It was really amazing. Yeah. It was a moment where there was, there was virtually one place that was the cool, red-hot center of the universe in terms of a restaurant. You know, I have, I have a great nostalgia for Odeon because I'm not sure that I'll ever see anything like it again. Yeah. But I hope so. I mean, I'm always hoping that, you know, some young version of Keith McNally is going to open the restaurant that's going to become that place again. New York is based on hope. You hope that you walk around the corner and you see something that changes your life. Meet somebody that changes your life. Mm. The final question about restaurants from your perspective, I was curious, you know, things like Daniel Hume's 11 Madison Park shifting to a plant-based menu, some of the new things that are happening. What do you think the impact of plant-based fine dining is going to have on wine, and particularly when it comes to pairings? 
I mean, I really admire what Daniel's doing. I've been to 11 Madison three times now since mm-hmm. it made the shift. And I, I think it's had a huge impact because it used to be, I mean, there was fine dining and there was vegan dining. And the twain, you could never imagine that they would meet. You know, it's like your sort of tempeh and your soy burgers. We're, we're never going to be in a, the menu of a three-star Michelin restaurant. And then suddenly this happens. But I have to say, it's challenging from a wine point of view. You know, you talk to the Psalms at 11 Madison and they, they present it as an exciting challenge. But <laughs> as a diner, I think it's a difficult challenge. You know, so much of our sense of food and wine pairings is based on, you know, old French and British ideas that, that have to do with like heavy meat dishes. Not only does that have to be rethought, but there's also the question about, I don't know, can you, a sort of tannic Cabernet-based wine, uh, does it really go with a roasted beet? Mm. I think that, that we have been shifting towards a new understanding of food and wine pairings for, for many, many years. We all eat lighter than, you know, um, 19th century British noblemen did. And I think Asian food has shifted the needle a little bit away from tannic heavy red wines where lighter lighter red wines were champagne and Riesling and so on. And this is the final step in that progression. As a lover of big red wines, um, I'm not sure I'd, I would go to a plant-based restaurant every, every week even. But, you know, as somebody who cares about the planet, I'm really impressed that Daniel is doing this. And I, and I think it's going to have a, he is going to have a huge impact. I think, yeah, I think he already has, at least in mm-hmm. the conversation. You know, some of his peers are pissed off at him, but <laughs> he's going to change the world. And I think there, some of the chefs out there are, are feeling personally that uh, he's dissing their own model. I think I'm too old and too hedonistic to switch to plant-based dining myself. But, <laughs> but as a trend, I admire it. So just to close out, looking ahead, and you touched on this a little bit, but what excites you or what's giving you hope about the future of wine or perhaps just the future more generally? I mean, global warming aside, um, I think it's amazing what's happened in recent years in terms of wine culture becoming established in in, in corners of the world where it didn't even exist. Between the rise of sommelier culture from the consumer point of view, between the spread of viticulture to so many parts of the world that that didn't have vines, mm-hmm. or, or at least that didn't have, that weren't making good wine until recently. I mentioned South Africa, you know, South America. I was recently in the Guadalupe Valley in Mexico, in, in Baja, where, believe it or not, they're making some very, very mm-hmm. decent wines. It's really hopeful. Every day somebody introduces me to a, a new and unexpected wine, often from a place that, that wasn't making fine wine, 15 or even 10 years ago. And Mm. that makes me hopeful for the future. I also think that the food scene in New York and other urban centers is just becoming more and more diverse. And, you know, think about like the 50s, 60s, the 70s, when there was sort of French cuisine and then there was kind of everything else. And you had a Cajun trend when I first came to New York in the 80s. and, And then sushi came along. But, you know, compared to the choices we have now, it was... It was kind of bleak back then. So I'm, I find the incredible diversity of the food scene in New York and elsewhere, Chicago and 
San Francisco and Seattle and so many other cities to, to be reason for hope, reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. This was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Bordeaux winemaker Chateau Chalang Mondeau. Chalang Mondeau cannot be explained. It needs to be lived. You can learn more about the winery at www.chalang-mondeau.com. That's T-R-O-P-L-O-N-G-M-O-N-D-O-T.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Emily Jang, Tiffany Zhao, Mike Lala, and Pat McKesker.